Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Developmentor Podcast. We are your source for interviews and content on careers in technology. I'm your host, Grant Ingersoll. If you want to learn more about the show, please visit our website at developmentor.com or follow us on Twitter at Developmentor. If you find value in the show, I have two small asks. Please subscribe on your favorite player and please leave us a rating or a review. Now on to the show. Today's guest is a computer scientist who has long specialized in the area of artificial intelligence and natural language processing, even well before the current craze of AI took root. Along the way, he's worked on expert systems, smart user interfaces, and personal assistance for a variety of companies, including SRI International, Apple, and Samsung, as well as founded several companies and advised a few more in the space. He's an accomplished public speaker and a founding member and advisor for change.org, the premier social network for good. Chances are, if you are listening to this show, you've also used one of the smart assistants he's helped pioneer in his career. I'm going to go out on a limb and also guess that you've probably used at some point his most famous invention, Siri. That's right, today's guest was the co-founder and VP of engineering for Siri, the personal assistant bought by Apple in 2010, and now on their devices worldwide. These days, he's the VP of R&D for Samsung Mobile and the VP of engineering for Viv Labs, which he co-founded in 2012 and Samsung acquired in 2016. Please welcome to the show, Adam Chire. Adam, it's an honor to have you on the show. So great to have you here. Oh, thanks, Grant. Really happy to be on the show. And Adam, you know, as I love to kick off with all my guests of really, you know, taking a tour through their highlights. And there's so much to dive into on your bio, starting with, you know, I think you did computer science as a major, you know, shall we say back in the day. So why don't we kick things off with you giving us that tour of your career? Sure. So yes, I had a computer science degree from Brandeis University. I have a BA, a Bachelor of Arts in computer science, which is pretty rare. But I think it was really important to my career in that I got a broad view, not just the technical side, but learning linguistics and philosophy and psychology, neuroscience, et cetera, all focused on this question of how do we human beings and our, our minds work? For me, it's the greatest miracle on the planet. So after graduating from Brandeis, I went and worked in expert systems at the largest European computer company for a couple of years and built a, a system that was deployed in 50 countries to do configuration expert systems. After getting a graduate degree from UCLA, I went to SRI International, which uh, used to be called Stanford Research Institute, and spent six years really playing in computer science. They had speech recognition and robots roaming the halls, virtual reality, natural language processing, planning systems, AI everywhere, machine learning. It was, for me, the most fun and interesting place to do computer science, and, and I loved it. At some point, I said, well, that's interesting, but I want to go try to make some impact in the real world. I left and joined a company called VerticalNet in right around 2000 during the big e-commerce, B2B e-commerce boom. Vertical Net was a top five IPO of 1999. And I really cut my chops on engineering management and how commercial software got built, which was very different than my research career. I ended up as VP engineering for that public company with $200 million of software deliverables to figure, you know, to deliver. That was one of the toughest growth areas of my career. I went from being a researcher playing in my office to now managing groups around the world of, of software engineers trying to, to deliver products. Um, did that for a couple of years, and then I came back to SRI to lead the largest AI project in U.S. government-funded history. It was $250 million project over five years, 400 people at its peak from 27 different companies and universities, best of the best in the land on all aspects of AI. And the goal was to build this personal assistant that could learn how you work and learn to help you, what they said called in the wild, meaning rather than teaching the assistant knowledge by uploading code changes, with no code changes, the assistant had to learn new things and get better at helping its, its users 
be productive in a work environment, managing their tasks and emails and meetings and all the things office workers do. And after a couple of years there, I you know, liked the research environment, but I really wanted to get impacts, to, to do things that mattered to a lot of people. I created five prototype projects, and we can talk more later, but my verbally stated goal, which is, is, is a tool I use to help guide decisions in my life, for 2007 was five projects that can impact users in 2007. I, I just had this desire to create. I was feeling stifled. So that's why five projects, get out ideas. And then 2008, one major, one minor. So after I've built prototypes of things I could show people, get feedback on, take the best two, the major and the minor, and start them as companies. And actually three companies, I started three companies at the same time not the way I would advise others to do it, but Siri was my day job, you know, a virtual assistant. I started a company called Sentient. That was my night job. It was a machine learning company back in 2006, seven, still exists today in, in various forms, but doing massively distributed machine learning for various problems ranging from finance to health, to agriculture, to retail and more. And then change.org was kind of like my little side-side project, which was really a bunch of my friends and I. I was the first developer, uh, and then I brought in some team, and it was really trying to explore how to harness the collective intelligence of the world to solve or take action on global problems and local problems, ranging from you know climate change and poverty and health and crime and terrorism and all these different things. Like, how can we get better at solving these problems? After two years, Apple saw Siri. We can talk a little more about that. But Steve Jobs called our office unannounced after we had launched a free app in the App Store. He said, hey, it's Steve. What you doing? Want to come over to my house tomorrow? And we're like, Steve? Steve Jobs is calling our office? That was a pretty big moment and eventually persuaded us to sell to Apple. I ran Siri uh, at Apple for a couple couple years. We launched the integrated iPhone version. And then the day Siri launched, the very next day, Steve Jobs died. An admin had reached out to me last year and said, there's something I've been wanting to tell you for years. I didn't know how to contact you. Steve was clinging to life to see the launch of Siri. And literally, he passed the very next day. And uh, some things changed. After that, I stayed for another nine months, but then left, took some time, and then said, I'm going to get back on the horse. I have a vision for what I want to do. And so I tried again with Viv Labs. Uh, as you mentioned, we sold to Samsung. And now I get really a second chance to bring my vision to a billion devices. Uh, not every entrepreneur gets two shots at something. So I'm very appreciative of all that. Yeah, that's fantastic. There's so much in there, Adam, that we could dive into. I mean, what an incredible story with Steve there, of course. And I do want to chat about that. I want to go back just a little bit before college because there's this really interesting data point to me on your profile that I'm intrigued by. And it's high school. And in, in your high school part of your LinkedIn profile, you mentioned computer science there as well. And so I'm really curious about your early inspirations in tech and what, what it was like to go into a field that, you know, like it was still at its infancy in many ways, right? And so it, I imagine there's this incredible freshness and openness of like all the world's possible back when you were starting there. I'm old, so I was in high school in the 80s, early 80s, and I felt like computers were invented just for me. Literally, the first computers arrived at our school when I was a sophomore or something like that in high school. I didn't know what they were. Uh, I ended up taking the first ever AP exam in computer science. There was no previous exam to study for. Literally, it felt like computers were arriving for me, and what really got me into it and maybe that says something about me. They announced on the, you know, the loudspeaker, after school today, there will be a meeting of the computer club. I go, wow, computers. I don't know anything about computers, but I'd like to try. And I went there and they said, oh no, you can't join. This isn't a computer club, it's a computer team. We are organized by the American uh, Society for Computing Machinery. 
We have competitions every week. We compete every week. We get a list of problems. We have 30 minutes to write a program that'll respond to those problems. And the top five scores get submitted as the school score. And we compete nationally, et cetera. And you don't know computers. You haven't taken a class. You can't join. And when someone tells me I can't do something, I get my dander up. And so I literally started stealing the problem description, you know, the problem set you'd get, and then thrown away printouts of people, you know, working and not working things and trying to just look at it and figure out what computer software was. And three or four weeks later, I came back and said, all right, I'm ready to take your stupid test. I ended up being the fourth best in the school. The top three all were seniors and went to MIT. We won the state championship that year with the number one program in the country. But it was the trying to be kept out, told I couldn't join. But then once I got just good enough to be able to kind of hang, then I was constantly trying to compete. We had these amazing, amazing students, and I learned so much from them, you know, the seniors that kind of got me in. And once I did that, I never wanted to do anything else. Yeah, that's amazing too that, you know, the effects sometimes gatekeepers can have is so the opposite of what their intention is, right? That is a great story. And thanks so much for sharing that. The other thing that's really interesting, right, is, you know, these days, of course, you can't turn a corner without hearing about AI. Like me, you know, you started your career in this field and what many people would call an AI winter, right? Back while you were doing those programming exercises and competing, like everybody was talking about AI then, right? It was going to revolutionize. And then I think there was this disillusionment that many went through in the the 90s. And how has that work shaped your career? You know, that early thinking in the space when computers were really on the scene at this point, but people were kind of down on AI. And yet you were digging deep at that time and really laying the foundation for much of these later successes. For good or for bad, I do what I want. I don't focus too much on what the outside world is doing. You know, the probably one of the first real programs I ever wrote in high school could be considered AI because I'm old, right? So 81, I was the Northeast Rubik's Cube champion. So the first program I ever wrote in BASIC was this massive go-to, if-then program that would tell you how to solve Rubik's Cube. You'd type in all the configurations of the cube, and it would say, do these moves to solve it. So in a sense, you know, that was like one of the first things I ever did. You know, I worked in the 80s on expert systems, on Lisp machines, and things like that when AI was hot. I worked in the 90s when it wasn't. It didn't change my approach at all. In the 90s, AI was such a bad word, no one would say it. So they swapped the initials to IA, intelligent agents, they called it. And it was just a euphemism, same stuff. You know, today AI is, has to be machine learning, which is really just a tiny subsection of what used to be called AI. And in fact, within the machine learning space, now it mostly means neural nets. And within neural net space, it's really kind of this back propagation, you know, at scale type of neural nets for it called deep learning. You know, so that's like the hot rage. I don't let any of that influence or bother me. I just do what I think is most important at any time. I'm not running around to where everyone thinks is hot at this moment or not. But with all of that, I will say timing is super important. I've been doing Siri-like systems since 1993, literally exactly half my life. If I had tried to launch it as a company anytime sooner, or later, it would not have had the success that it did. And so one of the things that I think is really important if you want to be an entrepreneur is to predict the right time for your ideas. You can be too early and you can be too late. And the process I use is what I call trends and triggers. In 2004, which for me was the 10th anniversary of the web, I spent a month, I put together a presentation called 10 Predictions for the Next 10 Years of the Internet. You know, I really formed beliefs and opinions about lots of things that are going on. And having an opinion is a huge advantage. Like you can pick anything like um, augmented reality, Bitcoin, et cetera, and make a prediction, do the research. Is it real or is it just a fad or is it a hype or is it going to change the world or how much? Having an opinion and insight gives you this advantage. So that's what I call a trend. Take a question at the moment, you know, do research and make a prediction of what's its trajectory. Then look out for triggers that validate that 
trajectory. So all of my 2004 predictions were about data is going to move to the cloud. We didn't call it the cloud back then, but move to servers and be co-located and service there. Once data is aggregated, machine learning can now happen on it at scale in a way that couldn't have worked before in disparate little computers. And there'd be a new interface paradigm that emerges to access all of that cloud-based data and services. When the iPhone came out in 2007, I know most people won't recall this, but back then the predominant view was that it was going to be a flop because only phone companies could make a phone, something as complicated as a phone. And Apple was a music player company. How dare it try to make a phone? I looked at it. I said, this is exactly what I've been waiting, a new interface paradigm to access all the cloud-based services through apps. This is going to be a huge success. Two years from now, every handset manufacturer and telco will be desperate to compete with Apple because they've just flipped the game. But what will they need to do that well, the screen is still pretty slow. It's hard to type. You know, every click is really slow because of the slow bandwidth. So the Siri idea will be exactly what the competitors to Apple will need to compete with this iPhone two years from now. So I started a company at that moment. The trigger was the iPhone. And then the irony, of course, is that, you know, we were building the iPhone killer for the competitors of Apple. Apple saw it first and convinced us to join them. But this notion of seeing where the world is going having views on it, looking for validating triggers that let you predict the future in two years, that's important. But in the meantime, work on things you find important. Don't work on what's the current trend or what's up or down. I'm, I'm curious from a practical standpoint, this trends and triggers model that you have, which I love, how often do you engage in that kind of, you know, I imagine that you're always chewing on some things in the background as, as most of us are, but do you like to this day carve out, you know, couple of weeks every year or, or whenever to sit down and kind of put pen to paper, as they say, on this, this approach? So the first one I did was, like I said, got the idea when it was the 10th anniversary of the web by Mike Hounding. I go, oh, what's the next 10 years going to look like? And I did one then, 2004. Then in around 2013, 14, I got up and did a presentation. You can actually find it on the web somewhere where I said, some people who try to predict the future just tell you the good one that they happen to predict. I'm going to give you the presentation I gave in 2004, show you my 10 predictions and score how I did looking back, and then make five new predictions for the next five years. And some of my predictions were really good. My craziest one was social networking will take off. Not obvious in 2004 because Friendster was the largest social network with 13 million members, most of them in like Brazil. LinkedIn existed, but was kind of niche. I had never heard of Facebook. It was just starting in the uh, Harvard campus. So to think that a year and a half later, MySpace would become the number one trafficked website in the U.S. You know, but I thought about it, researched it, and I said, I believe social networking will take off. And that led directly to our work on change.org. I believe that big data, what we now call big data, would move to the cloud and machine learning would become incredibly important. So that prediction did well, and I started Sentient to do exactly that. And I thought there would be a better interface to all the web services and content through a conversational mobile assistant. And that was Siri. So my best three predictions were great. I have others that I was so confident of and they didn't come to pass. So you can go see that presentation to find out what those were. But so I did five predictions through 2019. And here we are. It's just you know, beginning of 2020, it's time for me to literally right now either think five years or 10 years into the future and come up with some new predictions. That's fantastic. And for our listeners, we'll link those up in the show notes. We've talked around Siri a little bit. And, you know, of course, you've shared the story, the founding story in, in some other places. We'll link to some articles that go into some really great detail there. I'm really curious to hear, you know, especially for our listeners, you know, this show's about mentoring and inflection points in careers. I'm really curious now that you can reflect back on those times of your life as to what it felt like and what you learned over the course of that, you know, taking this idea, spinning it out of SRI, founding the company and selling to Apple, you know, so much more on the lessons learned, the emotional, the intellectual aspects of that time of your life. Because I imagine it's a lot to take in in a very short period of time. That's a fantastic question. 
So here's how I kind of approach life. You know, life's a book made up into chapters, and you're a different person at different points in time. You have different needs. And I feel the purpose of life is to really get the most out of your life. And how do you do that? Well, if you're in a good spot, if you're feeling satisfied and productive and doing what you need to be doing, where you should do it, write it out and make the most of it. But there come times when you're frustrated, you have some need, all of a sudden a new responsibility or a goal or a dream, and you're like, I'm not going to get there doing what I'm doing. And at that moment, a lot of people fear change. I have grown to love those inflection points, those chapter changes. When I know my current chapter is coming to an end or needs to come to an end, I focus on the core emotion that I'm feeling at that moment, that time in my life. I let it burn into my chest until it feels true. I can tell you my whole life story by what those chapters were, what emotion I was feeling that set me off in that chapter. Once you have the emotion isolated, you turn it into words, into a mission statement that captures that emotion fully, you know, as efficiently as possible. And it should be a mission statement or goal. And then you tell everyone you meet, I call it a verbally stated goal. You tell people, I'm going to do and your mission statement. That's kind of the greatest tool that I, when people say, wow, you've achieved a lot of success, you've made money, you've done what you've want, you've been happy, you have a great family, whatever. I say, this is the best tool I can give anyone about how to live a successful life where success is defined by making the most out of life for you at that moment. So with that context, here I am in the mid 40s. I've never started a company. I had no idea how to do it, no business school background, nothing. But I came to a point in my life as leading that largest AI project in US history, but I was feeling stifled. Like I had all these ideas that I couldn't, for political reasons, get out into this project. And I felt what we were working on was not going to impact users. So my verbally stated goal for 2007 was five projects that can impact users in 2007. I wanted to create five projects, not just one, not just two because it was stifled. And then uh, my 2008 verbally stated goal was one major, one minor. Take the best two ideas of the five prototypes that I had built that I could show with people and get feedback on and start them as companies. Even I had no idea how to do this, no clue, right? So mid-40s, never started a company. So I actually ended up starting three companies at the same time. Change.org was my side-side project. Siri was my major and Sentient was my minor. And I set off with this blind confidence that if I picked the right goal that was true to my heart and I knew why I was going after it, it wasn't for money, it was because I wanted to impact users from these ideas I created. If I chose the right goal that was true to me, I felt confident success would come in, even though I had no idea how. And I talked about it, I told people, I committed to it, people started to help me, and we started Siri. And yeah, I, I mentioned when Steve called the office unannounced, that was a crazy day. The original app that we launched, so Steve Wozniak, the other co-founder of Apple, was, uh, he still says the original Siri app is the greatest app he's ever used. Not the one that came out that's in the iPhone today, but that first one that we launched. So proud of that. The one emotional story of what that captures it, and another maybe tip or tool uh, for your listeners Whenever I start a goal, I always try to visualize what success looks like, like literally a picture in my mind. And so one little story, we, we had just started this little Siri company, you know, a handful of guys and girls doing this crazy thing that didn't exist in the world yet. And I walked into an Apple store and there on the wall of the Apple store were these icons of all the big players. There was Skype, there was Google, there was Pandora at these giant successful companies. And I summoned up every bit of crazy, you know, founder-laced ambition and said, someday, right there on the wall of an Apple store, next to the Googles and Skypes, Siri logo will be right there. And it seemed the craziest thing I could ever imagine to have the ambition to be a Google or a Skype or Pandora. So you fast forward a, a little bit later, Siri launches on October 4th, 2011, and we have to go to an Apple store to see, you know, people trying it, do they like it? 
And I walk up to that same Apple store next to the front door. They had this giant plasma display running kind of Siri screens on a loop with a sign saying, introducing Siri next to the front door of the Apple store. And I remember the visual crazy ambition of wanting to be one icon out of a hundred on a wall and the being the front door is like life reached out and like tweaked my nose and said, remember that? I gotcha. And that's happened to me over and over and over again. So I always say, visualize, picture what success would look like. Life will often come back, not only grant it to you, just like one up it just to like tweak you a little bit. And I got chills when I saw that. So it's a great emotional moment. That's uh, heady stuff, as they say, right? I mean, uh, that's what dreams are made of. But it's, it's also like, I love that framework for a verbally stated goal. I've, I've never heard anybody state it so succinctly. I mean, you hear a lot of frameworks around that. But I love that. I'm going to isolate the emotion because I think when most of us deal with that dissonance, it evokes this flight or fight part of your brain. And, and what you're saying is grasp onto that and head right into the beast. And it's going to be uncomfortable. It's hard to take your fear, your desire, your angst, your frustration, and to let it use that emotion, let it grow, boil it until you go, this is what's true for me. This is what I need to vanquish or to accomplish, what I'm frustrated, I need to fix. When it becomes true, it's all about truth for you and, and not like what people are telling you to do, like this is what your job should be like or this is what society thinks of you. This is what needs to be true to you. Just by asking yourself the question, what do I really want? What would be the best thing I could have for in life? And not Make it those intellectual or cultural things. Make it what's true. Just by asking the question, that will make your life better. Because so many people don't think about it consciously, and they kind of take whatever job wanders into their, you know, someone offers them something, they go, eh, that looks pretty good, I'll take that. Or they meet someone, oh, they look pretty, I'll marry them, or whatever. You know, they don't think that much about what is it that I need truly, if you spend the time to figure that out, it's different at different points. I can give you a few examples of the core needs and emotions I've had over my lifetime and what I did about them, what I said I was going to do, even though I didn't know how. I said, I need to do this. And then I did it. I'd love to hear one more. This is so intriguing to me because I often talk in the show, my model has been what I would call guided exploration, which is I have some general frameworks in place, but if there's an interesting thing that kind of comes along, I say, you know what, I'm going to go explore that a little bit deeper. I'm always exploring interest. I certainly cultivate your interests, but like I've got projects and side interests and hobbies and things that I've carried along with me for a while. And But this is kind of different. Like These are like chapters of life. They don't usually rise. Sometimes they do. Like Siri, I had been working on in forms since 93 but I never needed to start to get it out in the world with impact before. That was a need that just rose in me like truth. Like I'm tired of working on research that's going nowhere. I got to do something that matters to someone. And it was so important to me. Then my little hobby became a vehicle through which I could get to my need of, of doing something real and important. Here's another one just as different from that you know, where that's so career focused. You know, I was a young man uh, living in France. You know, I had lots of girlfriends, you know, they were beautiful and smart and they checked every box, but I never felt that I was in love. Like, what is love? And can I feel love? Is love a myth? Is it real for some people and not me? That was a, a, an introspective question. And so one of my needs at one point was can I fall in love? I was curious. Like I've had all these girlfriends that check every box I could want, PhD, rich, whatever, accomplished, but I didn't feel in love. And I said, I want to explore. I need to know the answer to that question. Can I fall in love? And ultimately by raising awareness that this was something important to me at that time of life, I actually went places that I never would have gone before. I ended up having this chemistry and falling in love with a woman who was on paper all wrong, right? She didn't have the right religion, uh, diplomas, you know, whatever, on paper. But there was something that I was crazy about her. And I would not have normally explored it, but because I had this 
verbally stated goal. I let myself follow and, and we've been married 22 years and every day I wake up and just thank her and myself that we found each other. So it really can be anything, any burning question you have, any need, you know, et cetera. So just knowing what's important, I think this tool can be helpful. As I'm reflecting back on my own, like I know starting my own company and, and then actually making the decision to leave, I would say fell into that same category of there is this emotion. Like I think many of us who are math and computer science inclined, we often think so rationally about so many things that when we have these types of feelings, they are hard to wrap your heads around because we're not classically trained to do them necessarily. I mean, that is so helpful. And I, I hope our listeners, you know, go back and listen to that again, because it was fantastic. You keep using this word. I have this side side project change.org, which to me, is, it's hilarious that you describe it that way, because for our listeners who don't know, like change.org is, it is as much impacted probably as any of these other things you've described. And yet you're kind of, hey, it's this side-side project. So I'd love for you to expand a little bit more there because there's something deeper there as well. Let me say a few things. So for people who don't know, change.org is the world's largest petition platform. If you've ever signed an online petition, there's a very good chance it was on change.org. There are 330 million members in countries all around the world. And the idea is really to shine a spotlight not only on a problem but a solution at any scale. It could be as big as trying to make an improvement for global warming or poverty, etc., or it could be as small as a local issue in your town. Uh, so the way it works is you go and you can find a petition to sign, which is really easy. Once you're a member, you just click and, and add your support, or you can start a petition. And every petition has the form of three parts. Number one, it's not like, I want world peace, which isn't actionable. It's, it's very directed. You say, I want this person or this organization, that's part one, to make this change, very specific change, to do this thing, that's part two, and part three, and here's why. And if people agree, there are millions and millions of people out there who can click on it and say, I support not only this problem, but this solution. And if you get a couple hundred thousand clicks uh, supporting your idea, it shines this media spotlight of sorts on an organization or a person. You know, they're not going to instantly just cave and do whatever you want, but they usually have to react and respond to it in some way. And, and many times there are competing sides. You know, some one group of people want this to be done and another group of people want the opposite to be done. And so it's a, a platform and a vehicle for making action in the world. And every day there are victories of all sorts of, of just the most incredible varieties and stories that come about, you know, through change.org. The reason I say my side side project, so I was lucky enough to be there at the beginning. Ben Rattray, the CEO and founder, come from Washington, DC, moved to Silicon Valley. We got introduced. And so I was the first technical person he met. And I've long been interested in collective intelligence, I guess I would call it. How do you harness the collective intelligence of the world to take purposeful, actionable, you know, move the world forward on the world's biggest problems? So that, that's one of my career-long life goals, statements, things I want to explore and interact with. And he described this at some level. And I go, that's very much in line with what I want to do. I'll build the first version of the website for you. I'll help bring in some friends that I know. It's a volunteer effort. It's not easy to raise funding for basically a nonprofit. You know, once I had gone to start Siri, so I did about a year and a half on change.org relatively actively as a side project. I still had a day job. But then once I got full-time with Siri and Sentient, I basically became an advisor. And all the success came after I was there. So I can't claim, you know, other than a little bit of advice here and there or help or assistance or fundraising or whatever, I can't really take uh, any credit for the success. But I'm so proud of being affiliated with this unbelievable company to have been there at the start, to have built like a first version, to have helped get it going and to kind of just be there to watch and, and foster it over, over time. But at a large scale, like million, hundreds of millions of people, what sites, websites, or tools impact 
the world in a positive way using collective intelligence. The only two I really come up with at that scale are Wikipedia and change.org. Those are two that have managed to find the right set of levers and policies and procedures and, and get the game dynamics right so that good emerges out of mass contribution with hundreds of millions of people. And that's not easy to do. Uh, I wish I could point to more examples of websites using hundreds of millions of people to do good work. It's not that easy. So I'm very proud of change.org. And, you know, although my contributions are small, this is the thing that I'm associated with in my career that I'm probably the most proud to be associated with. Throughout all of this, Adam, you know, you've built and led a lot of teams. What are some of the key things you think about when it comes to creating the team, when it comes to finding co-founders, to finding employees, investors? So I always say entrepreneurship's the best job in the world. There's three hard steps and one easy step to being successful, to taking an idea out to impact. The three hard steps are, step one, have the right idea at the right time. It needs to be big enough, ambitious enough. And like I said, timing through triggers and trends, you can be too early or too late. So finding the right idea. Step two is finding the right co-founders. In my view, there are four skills that are required of the founding team. Um, doesn't mean there needs to be four people, but your founding team needs to cover these four skills. So number one is you need a visionary, someone who knows kind of the big picture, the long picture. Why are we doing this? Where are we going and why? Uh, number two, you need a product person who can translate the vision or product skill, who can take that long-term vision and say, we're doing this first, this second, and here's why. So here's how we're going to get there. Uh, the third thing is you need a marketeer who can take that vision and sell it to customers, to investors, to employees, you know, in a compelling way. Uh, and the fourth is you need the builder, the guy who's going or girl who will stand up and say, I'm going to deliver the roadmap, the product on time, on budget, it's gonna really work. And so you need to collect those skills and know if you're gonna be a founder, which one or ones are you good at and finding the right people. And it's not just that they're accomplished and good at, you need to find the right people who have chemistry with you. So like with Siri, the three co-founders, Dog Kitlaus was the you know, part visionary and definitely the marketeer. I was definitely the builder and product person. Tom Gruber was the designer and kind of covered those areas. We had amazing chemistry. Uh, sometimes we'd go into a conference room and yell at each other and blow the roof off the building. But we came out, it was never with grudge. It was so much thought and love and fight for the, what's right gone in those, among those three co-founders. And I just loved, I feel like it's one of the greatest software achievements I've ever done is really everyone I talked to said, oh, I used the original Siri. It was incredible. And like we, every decision came because we fought so hard together to make it great. And um, I'm very proud of that. So getting the right chemistry where you can be true and have the right mix of ideas and perspectives, but be able to work together, super hard. So how do you do that? I collect lists of people through my career. If someone surprises me in a positive way, which doesn't happen that often, I never forget it. They go on my list in these different skills. And the technical side, I have managed to hire and work with four out of the top five technical people I've ever met. Still going. I'm still, I have not forgotten number four. He's on my list. I will get there someday, right? But you, you just need to find people who know what you're great at, know what you'll need, network, and remember people who surprise you in a positive way. Be uh, relentless in trying to, to work with them. That's fantastic. That's funny because I have similar folks who I've met and crossed paths with. It's like, I want to work with that person someday. And I, I keep checking in. In fact, I had one that I hired a few years ago and it was like, it just so happened to be right time and right place. And I knew the company fit was right. Finally, it wasn't earlier. He, he was in a certain time in life that he it fit. And it was like, boom, we got to work together. And to this day, still good friends and, and rely on him, even though we don't work together anymore. Shifting gears and kind of looking forward here a little bit, you know, you've obviously had some amazing success and you've talked a lot about your framework. I'm curious as to what's motivating you work-wise these days? What is the chapter you're in right now? 
So my current chapter is global impact. Those are the two words that I'm trying to do. And this has been a lot, the longest chapter of my life. It goes back seven years now. The day after Siri launched, Steve Jobs died, things changed. I felt like I couldn't pursue the vision I wanted at Apple. So after nine months of trying, I finally left. And everyone's like, wow, you're, you helped create Siri. And you, know, you must feel so great and so proud. And I'm like, yes, I'm, I'm very, very proud. But I am also extremely frustrated. Siri was meant to be so much more than what it was. And I think one of the good qualities of a founder, an entrepreneur, is someone who is not satisfied. They see something in the world that bugs the heck out of them, and they have to fix it. And I just had this vision and what I was going for. So we achieved a little bit, some of it with Siri, but I desperately wanted more. You know, Yes, it achieved certain things, but it did not achieve what I was going for. So I sat down and I said, the next thing I do, I want to have global impact. I want to do something that's paradigm scale. And what that means is it should impact every connected user and every connected business. Siri is not doing that. A lot of people use it. I mean, there are billions of requests every day, but no business depends on it. So things like the web, mobile, those are you know, transformative to every connected user, every connected business. If we took away smartphones, if we took away the web, our lives would be different. After leaving Siri, what did I do? I said, I'm going to come up with five prototypes of ideas that I think can have global impact by this definition, paradigm scale. And I was going to pick a major and a minor. My major was Viv Labs. Uh, so the idea is to take the assistant concept and make it as important or more important than the web or mobile, able to impact every connected user and every connected business by opening up an assistant that is not powered by deals and negotiations and built-ins. Like today's assistants, Amazon, Siri, Google Assistant, they have app stores of different sorts, but no one uses the third-party services there. It's all the traffic goes to the built-in negotiated deals. You know, when you say, what's the web? Someone has paid money or Google has paid money or whatever to have some partner answer that question. That's not how the web works. That's not how mobile works. So I said, I want to create an assistant where, like the web and mobile, all the traffic goes to third-party websites or to third-party created services and only a tiny part. And if we do that, every industry will be transformed. So that's been my goal for seven years. We built uh, a revolutionary technology platform. It is by far the most advanced AI platform available for third-party developers. If you're in the space, you know, compared to an Alexa or Google Assistant or anything like that, no one has ever seen anything like it. There's AI code writes every use case for you, not the developer. A lot of cool tech stuff. And we sold to Samsung because they have a billion device footprint, number one in TVs, number one globally in phones. They have refrigerators, appliances. They acquired Harman, the number one smart speaker company, the number one car electronic company, et cetera, et cetera. So I said, if I can put this assistant initially on every Samsung device, open up an ecosystem, and then open it up to every device in the world, that can create basically Siri as the next internet. And that's what's been driving me so far. Feels like the right mix for that next level of engagement. So I can see the appeal in joining there. Adam, I know we're, we're getting towards the end of the show here. I want to finish up with a couple of questions. And one that I love to ask, especially for somebody who's been pretty intentional about creating these chapters, what's been the most surprising thing? about your career today that high school kid who just like damn it i'm gonna be in the computer club what would that person be most surprised by as you look back so in 10 years literally exactly 10 years so uh, actually this month just two weeks ago was the 10th anniversary of the launch of siri so in the last 10 years basically i went from believing that one person, there's no way I could impact the world in a big way. I'm like, I'm just one person. What can I do? I can't change anything in the world. I went from that perspective in my 40s. like So it's not like I was 20. I had a successful career and been VP engineering at a public company and this and that. But I was like, what can one person do? To now, 
I'm like, of course I can change a billion lives. If I'm not trying to do something that impacts a billion lives, like what am I doing? Like it's a hobby, right? Of course I can do it. So the most surprising thing I think, I mean, it's a great question. I've never been asked that before. I think is that change of perspective. And so now I'm in my mid fifties, I'm less smart, I have less energy, I'm less skilled than I was 10 years ago, but I now have this belief that, oh, of course, if I do the right things and do it the right way, I can have major impact in the world on whatever dimension I choose. That confidence and belief is what makes me more powerful now than 10 years ago. It's the only thing that makes me more powerful now, I think. Maybe some of the experience I've learned. But that's surprising. And I think if you would ask me any time from that high school kid up to you know my early 40s, could you have impact at scale? I would have said, no, what, what could I do? What can one person do? And the mm-hmm. fact that if I can do it at that point with no entrepreneurship experience, basically being just a researcher sitting and be, having a few hobby technology passions, if I can do it, I think anyone can do it. But the hard part is getting people to believe in you, to doing the important things, and then just believing you can do it blindly and going out to do it. It's not something someone can just tell you and have you believe. You kind of have to fool yourself into believing it along the way, which is what I've done. But I tell you, once you get there, you can do anything. Adam, I I usually finish up with asking for your best career advice, but I think you've already given that in in your verbally stated goals framework and the the trends and triggers. And so I'm going to shift it a little bit. And, you know, the show is called Developmentor. It has mentor in the name. Talk about your mentors and what they've meant to you and what you've learned. I have three or four mentors. I'll go quickly through them. The first was here at SRI, a guy named Phil Cohen. And what he taught me was to dream bigger. I remember that we were working on a project. I I thought of the most ambitious, crazy thing I could. He goes, uh, should be bigger. I'm like, I can't imagine bigger. And then he, you know, quadrupled it. I'm like, oh, I'm not thinking big enough. Like, so think bigger, I learned from Phil Cohen. Uh, Douglas Engelbart is the greatest computer scientist who's relatively unknown. He created the mouse, the first hyperlinked multimedia systems that were really the predecessors of the web, first shared screen teleconferencing, the first multi-windowed systems, on and on and on. I mean, he invented literally the personal computer in the 60s and the internet. He said the world is going to be faced with ever complex urgent problems like global warming, poverty, etc., Unless we get better as a species at solving global problems, we're not going to survive. And all of that technology he created was for this purpose to augment human intellect and to improve the collective IQ, which is a term he coined. Uh, So I learned that from him as a goal. Change.org and some of the other projects I've worked on are in that space. The third person I'd cite was Hugo Daly, a manager who believed in me more than I believed in myself and showed me he had, if you worked on his team, he had your back 150%. He would put his job on the line for you unquestioned. And that devotion to his team and belief in his team, you know, I aspire to be like uh, with my teams. And if you've ever worked worked for me or with me on a team, I am your indebted servant for life. Because anywhere I've gotten, it's based on a lot of people. And I learned that from him. So I'd say those are my top three. There, there are more and Steve Jobs I learned so much and, and others. But I'm going to pick those three. That's amazing. Uh, I really appreciate you sharing that. And Adam, so great to have you on the show. Final question. Where can our listeners best get more information from you, learn more about you, your career path, perhaps your social media uh, whatever is the best way to engage with you going forward. Sure. I have a website, adam.chire.com. I think I made it in like the 90s. So it looks like that, but that's a, one way to keep track of me. I have uh, a Twitter account. I don't post too much and Facebook. You can find me there and LinkedIn. And if you want to see my latest work, if you're interested in AI and development tools, my latest creations are at bixbydevelopers.com. Uh, Bixby is Samsung's Siri. And as I said, we have the most interesting, open, third-party developer-focused ecosystem 
for taking your content and services. You have a website, you have a mobile app. Now you can have an assistant interface uh, across a billion Samsung devices. Just download the IDE. And even if you're not a bought into Bixby, you want to see where the field is going of assistance. I think there are amazing ideas that you'll learn just by taking a look at what we're doing at BixbyDevelopers.com. That's amazing. And for our listeners, we'll be sure to link those up in the show notes. Adam, I can't thank you enough. I learned so much just in this hour conversation that we've had. So thank you so much for joining us today. It was great to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Grant. Really appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Developmentor podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Even better, please leave us a review. If you want to hear older episodes, leave feedback or sign up to be a guest, please visit us at developmentor.com. If you'd like to support the show, there are three ways you can help out. One, make a donation via Patreon. Two, if you're a software engineer looking for your next gig and wanting to practice interviewing, use our referral link to the interviewing.io platform. And three, buy your next tech book from Manning Publications using our affiliate link. All of those links can be found at developmentor.com support dash us. That's S-U-P-P-O-R-T dash U-S. All one word. Most importantly, if you like this show, please tell your friends. Referrals are the lifeblood of any podcast. Finally, we here at Developmentor hope that each and every episode helps you move one step closer to finding your path.